All right, this is Lupkin's Locks. This is your host, Reed Lupkin. Uh, go, this is provided by SportsMe. Go and download SportsMe. And instead of talking about fantasy football and sports betting, I decided to have a special guest on, uh, former quarterback Steve Walsh. Steve, how you doing? Doing good, Reed. So no, no gambling. We're not going to talk about anything <laughs> gambling. Nothing related to that this episode. Uh, Don't worry. Yeah, I, I, I'm not I can't, trying. I'm not trying to put your job at jeopardy. Don't worry. I'm good. So, to start, uh, for those who might not be as familiar, Steve, he grew up in Minnesota, and he got his start in college at the University of Miami. He redshirted his freshman year and started the next two years winning the championship in 87 and finishing his career in 88. He got drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in 1989 in the supplemental draft where he was taken first overall. He then got traded. He moved to different teams after being drafted by the Cowboys the season later, he got traded to the saints where he spent three to four years there. He went to the Chicago bears, then the St. Louis Rams, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Indianapolis and finished his career with the Indianapolis Colts. He played with various hall of fame teammates and notable head coaches such as Jimmy Johnson Jim Mora and Tony Dungy. The teammates include guys such as Isaac Bruce, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, Peyton Manning. So um, I thought I'd ask on a more lighthearted note. I first met you when I was seven at my grandparents' house in Boynton Beach for Passover. Was that your first Passover Seder? Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the, the Jewish religion was was unfamiliar to me until I really came down to Miami. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Florida, a little bit more prevalent. And and uh, so, yeah, so your your uncle uh, invited me to Passover with uh, with your grandparents yes. and uh, Artie and Selma and, and uh had, a, had an interesting. I, I tell you this: I will never eat uh, kefilte fish. <laughs> I won't. I won't. I didn't eat it then. I, I won't eat it with a fox. I will not eat it with a in a box. So yeah, that, that's that's taken a little bit too far. But uh, you know, obviously, uh, actually, good, good I people. Don't really and, like, I actually don't like it really that much either. So I kind of <laughs> have to side with you there. Uh, but. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not a fan of gefilte fish either. Whenever my parents ask me, I'm like, get that away from me. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd also ask, um, how is it possible that my Jewish uncle, Uncle Adam, is the godfather of your Irish Catholic son, Brayden? Well, you know, we would we we would see if we could uh, make the walls tumble in the in the chapel, you know, by uh, bringing him in there and, and standing in at the baptism. So, uh, I mean, you know, as I as I always uh, tease uh, Uncle Adam, he is the stand-in godparent, but uh, 
he's taken that stand into a whole new level and is the acting godparent uh, for my son, Brayden. And um, so we, we have a good time joking about that, but he's been a good friend. He's been really, really good to my, to my young son. I really to all of my children. And uh, uh, so he's, uh, he, he keeps it uh, entertaining, uh, you know, for, for my, for my children. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Uncle Adam, he's great. Uh, uh, well, let's not go that far. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely appreciate him helping set this up. But um, as for the standing, or thought I'd also ask, your nephew is Tampa Bay Lightning defender and former New York Rangers captain Ryan McDonough. Uh, I wanted to ask sort of, what was it like seeing him win the Stanley Cup given the weird COVID-19 circumstances and conditions since the NHL had a bubble format? You couldn't really go to the games. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, you know, over the years, obviously, you follow him with a lot of pride. And, and you know, my father was a, was a really good high school hockey player. And, and, you know, it was back. This was back in the 50s. And, you know – as rumor had it, he had a chance to go to, you know, a school out East and, and didn't have the grades and ended up not going that route. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I was a good young athlete and I played three sports and actually one, one year I played four sports where I, I played football, baseball, and I played in the same winter sport. I played hockey and then I played basketball as well. And so going into high school, did they intercede in seasons? Oh yeah. Yeah. They could, hockey and, oh. and basketball crossed over. So I would literally go from a hockey game in the morning to a basketball game in the afternoon. And, and so going into um, my freshman year and I was going to go to the same high school that my father went to, it's a school with a lot of tradition over a hundred years old type of school, that, that type of uh, school. And I was very nervous to tell him that I was going to quit hockey and just, play basketball in high school. And uh, so I did it. And my dad, like usual, didn't get phased. He's like, well, at least I don't have to buy, you know, $200 pairs of skates. You know, I just got to buy some, <laughs> some, you know, some high tops and you got a pair of shorts, you're good to go. So anyways, yeah. um, so then fast forward to my nephew, my sister's son. Uh, they also, with, with a little bit of help from me, went to that same high school that my father went to, that I went to, and uh, my younger brother went to. And they went on to win a state hockey tournament, uh, state champion. And so it was really just kind of the irony of, of that, you know, for my <laughs> father to, to finally kind of have his hockey player. And, and uh, both, both nephews played on that state champion team. And then obviously... To, to get drafted. He went to Wisconsin for, for three years and then into the NHL. And of course, New York made that, uh, that, that tremendous trade uh, to get him uh, along with a few other players. And then, you know, Ryan's had a very special career. We've, we've traveled, you know, your, your uncle Adam and I've gone to New York to see him in the garden. And, you know, we've gone over to Tampa to see him play. We've seen playoff games. Um, and, you know, Three summers ago, I, I'm now coaching up in the Canadian Football League, and yeah. I had just won with the Toronto Argonauts. Uh, we had won the Grey Cup, their, their Super Bowl. It's called the Grey Cup. Yes. And I, I had a big old ring, 
Uh, actually, let me just grab it right here. So, wow. And uh, so we we had a uh, a little gathering. You know, whenever I go home, you know, I always get together with all my my siblings. But uh, there's there's the ring, right? That's that's a big old honking ring. You always. And uh, he had just been traded to Tampa. Um, you know, it was in the summer before he was going to play. And and I made a comment to him. I said, "Hey." Why don't you go get one this year? And, they, and they, obviously they were a very good team. Uh, and it was one of the years where they actually, I think, went somewhat deep in the playoffs, but then lost. And then the next year they, they were in the first round. They got uh, trounced and, and had a great Wasn't year, that so. when they had the best regular season record in yeah. the NHL? Like. Yeah, it was. And, and I guess, you know, maybe that was, it was probably going into that year. Anyways, uh, long story short, it's great to see that they finally got redemption in Tampa because they, they've been a very special team, but they got just the right mix of players. Um, and, uh, you know, they actually came over here and we golfed with them. Actually had your uncle Adam along with <laughs> us and, uh, it was Ryan and Braden point and, uh, Zach Bergosian, who's, who's now since left the team and went to Toronto, but, uh, they came over and we all golfed with them. And, you know, they made a comment that it was, it was really difficult to be uh, kind of in that bubble. It, it was really a struggle for them, just emotionally not having their family and friends to to be part of it and, and things like that. But uh, it was cool to see that. Yeah, it was definitely noted among like the NBA and NHL players. It was sort of difficult not being able to have sort of that freedom that you typically have as a professional athlete where you can go wherever you want. And, you know, they were joking around that, you know, girls they would invite over and stuff like that would ruin the entire bubble and everyone would get COVID. But luckily, uh, both leagues, they didn't even have a single positive test while being in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, it, it came, I think at a good time, I think, uh, I think uh, the population needed it. You know, they needed uh, an outlet. They were tired of watching, you know, old football games that maybe I played in or, or whoever, uh, you know, they, they needed some, the some documentary. fresh live, uh, live uh, sport action. So. Yeah. Uh, I, did you ever try to get Ryan into football? Oh, he played, he played. Um, he was a good baseball player. He was a good football player. He actually, stopped playing football um i think it was either before his junior or senior year you know he had he had gotten offered a scholarship in in hockey and he was he was playing in all like the junior national teams and um you know he was very promising young young athlete but he was a good football player and uh, i think my high school coach said that had he played they probably would have won the state because there was a play in the state championship game where their free safety, which is where Ryan would have played, you know, missed uh, a tackle. <laughs> and hey. Ryan, Ryan would have made that tackle. So <laughs> anyways, uh, but he had, he had a very blessed uh, high school career and he was Mr. Hockey in the state of Florida, which, you know, is, or excuse me, in the state of Minnesota, uh, which is obviously the top, uh, you know, amateur hockey award there. So for high school. Yeah, that, that's pretty incredible. So 
um, more towards your career or you're bringing up uh, after you were after you grew up and played uh, high school football in Minnesota, uh, you accepted a scholarship at the University of Miami. How exactly did you end up there? So Mark Trestman uh, had played college football. Mark Trestman, who was the Chicago Bears head coach at one time, and he actually coached in the CFL, had me come up to the CFL with Toronto where we won the Great Cup. And um, my high school uh, coordinator, offense coordinator, played college ball at Minnesota with Mark, and I was not getting recruited. You know, I was getting recruited by Division three schools. And then Iowa State was my first school that offered me a scholarship. Really? Um, and then Louisville offered me a scholarship with Howard Schlumberger, but that was Louisville was because of, of Tressman. So Mark came up to see me. He liked what he saw. So Miami started recruiting me. He was coaching at first in Miami at the time. And then he, he told Howard Schnellenberger, who was at Louisville, said, Hey, you should, you should look at this quarterback. And then Howard, you know, uh, started recruiting me, you know, came to the house to visit, you know, me and my family. And uh, so did Jimmy Johnson. But that, that's how it started. But just how times have changed. I mean, this was in this was in November of my senior year, you know, uh, actually probably even closer to December. And uh, and then I, you know, now kids are getting scholarship offers. Uh, Sophomore, like eighth, eighth, eighth and ninth graders are getting offers. But, um, <laughs> you know, it just it was a different time and how you recruited. And, and uh, so, you know, and then I got I got my first offer like in December of my senior year. Well, it's it's definitely different now since you have outlets like YouTube or similar ones. Uh, if you've heard of Overtime, uh, that's an app, uh, that's an app that's typically used for to get high schoolers recognition. There's a lot more film study and tape. Obviously, the uh, having a combine or being able to have measurement or recorded data and measurements of different players definitely affects it now it was it, it was definitely a different ball game back then yeah I mean recruiting services and scouting services all help I mean obviously these schools subscribe to you know and they'll, they'll get names and they'll get uh different things and you know it used to be where you'd, you'd go to an area and you talk to the the most dependable coach you you can <laughs> find or the best relationship you'd have and he'd say hey go look at this kid go look at that kid and that's kind of how things were done so now it's obviously the internet and the film exchanges that they can do on various sites with Huddle, and uh, there's a lot more exposure for for young athletes. What was it sort of like, even though Jimmy Johnson at the time was this Miami coach coming from what was it, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State? Oklahoma State. Yeah. Uh, what was it like having him? What was it like having him come to your house and? Uh, recruit you like was there a funny story from it or yeah I mean um, when he showed up I mean this was middle of December um, I think it was right before Christmas and it was cold in Minnesota and he showed up in a in a sweet looking suit (laughs) you know silk suit and and I remember my dad looking at it like holy crap that's the shiniest suit I've ever seen and he didn't have an overcoat (laughs) uh, now Jimmy would tell you the story uh about you know why the hell are we going to minnesota to recruit this kid i mean you know what's he going to go to he's going to go to iowa state over miami come on you know? <laughs> like he, he didn't really want to go make the trip but um you know the guy because trustman ended up leaving miami so he didn't recruit me uh, uh 
the, an offensive line coach by the name of Tony Wise, who, who went on to be a, a, one of the best O-line coaches in, in all of the NFL, um, he recruited me. So he, he dragged Jimmy up there and sat down and had, uh, they were late, so I don't think they had dinner. <laughs> uh, I'm sure my mom offered them something, but, uh, you know, they, 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 they couldn't find their way and it was probably snowing and things like that. But that was, that was a funny part of it. And, you know, but uh, he, he did his spiel. And, you know, for me, I had Ames, Iowa, Louisville, Kentucky, or Miami, Florida. It's kind of a pretty no-brainer, pretty much a no-brainer for a kid from Minnesota. You had the nice weather. It was a big yeah. football program at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, girls in bikinis, uh, that didn't hurt. I'm yeah. just saying. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. fast forward um, – before playing, you redshirted your freshman year and sat behind Heisman winner and future longtime NFL quarterback Vinny Testaverde. How did having a guy like Vinny, as well as gr- a great coaching system, which if you know the NFL or in college now, it's very significant to have that help and have advanced schematics and uh, have the right coaching system or else you can mess with the development of a quarterback and talented teammates as they were getting uh, Miami was getting very great recruiting classes. You played with uh, Michael Irvin. Uh, How did Vinny along with those uh, factors help contribute to your success as a QB at Miami? So I sat for two years, I was redshirted. And then my freshman year, I was eligible to play, but Vinny was still there winning the Heisman. And, and so, and I was actually the third string quarterback, uh, Gino Toretta's older brother was our, actually our backup and, uh, and he was a good player. And uh, so they had Vinny and, and Jeff Toretta and then, then myself, and then a, f- a few other guys that were in the room that would ultimately compete with me the following year for the starting job. And so, you know, I went for two years without the coach ever really speaking to me, but it, it didn't Jimmy? bother me. No, not, not Jimmy. Well, probably Jimmy too, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm talking about the, our offensive coordinator, quarterback coach. I uh, mean, he, he taught, but he was directly speaking to Vinny. So if I would have fallen asleep, like the other two freshmen, I probably would have missed some things, but I didn't, I stayed awake and uh, you know, listened to how Vinny was answering the questions and how the, the conversations were going and uh, I just absorbed everything. And so then going, you know, like freshman year, you know, I'm a, I'm a 18 year old freshman or not, I don't know if it was 19, I think it was 18 and uh, go to Norman, Oklahoma and, and, you know, a place where Jimmy had taken many ass whoopings from, uh, from OU when he was at Oklahoma state or whatever. Uh, but went there and we dominated. And uh, that was a great uh, game that Troy Aikman's career took a turn for the better, probably, maybe not, but he broke his leg in that game and then later transferred to UCLA and obviously went on to an incredible career. But uh, you know, those are the things, those experiences I just was absorbing. So then two years later, when it's my turn to step into the, to the spotlight, you know, I was ready. I was emotionally ready. I was physically ready, as ready as I was going to be, because I was a skinny, skinny white kid from Minnesota. Yeah. Um, but uh, mentally, I was very prepared. You know, I knew our offensive system, which was 
I was on a little Zoom call with Barry Switzer and he made this, this comment. He said, Miami was way advanced uh, than the rest of the nation in how to throw the football. You know, our, our, our past concepts and the way we, we threw the ball, uh, we, were, we were light years ahead. I don't know if light years is fair, but we were definitely ahead of the rest of the country. You know, maybe some of the teams in the out West and the pack 10 at the time were, were close, but you know, that's, that's what Barry Switzer said. I didn't say that Barry Switzer said that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was it sort of like, or what was it also like having teammates uh, like uh, Michael Irvin and, you know, like you had very uh, Miami always has very talented recruiting classes um was it, it definitely made uh, life as a quarterback easier for you right well when guys can get open and they can separate and and give you space to throw the football and then when they do get in their hands they can make people miss and and run <laughs> for a lot of yards or touchdowns afterwards yeah that makes a quarterback's job easier <laughs> yeah. and uh you know i mean mac jones at alabama is experiencing that right i mean he's yeah. he's had an incredible year but he's got receivers that can separate from defensive backs. And if he does happen to miss a little bit, he can still get a completion out of it, but he's had a hell of a year because of, of the, of the guys around him and he's done his job. Yeah. And so at Miami, I realized after watching, you know, the, the failure at the end of our 86 season, which was uh, our performance in the Fiesta Bowl offensively, because defensively we played great in that Fiesta Bowl versus Penn state, but we lost the game. I don't know, 14 to seven or nine or something like that. And, uh, but offensively we had four or five turnovers and, and, you know, at least four of them might've been interceptions. So I realized that, Hey, we just got to take care of the football, play good defense. Uh, I got guys around that, that can make plays and I just have to do my job and not try to do too much. And that's what Jimmy knew I could do. And that's why I became the starting quarterback. And we went on and went 12-0 and 0 and won the national championship. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, the next uh, – your first season as a starter, you won the national championship against Oklahoma. It must have also been great for Jimmy that he was able to get his win against a team that would kick his ass in uh, at Oklahoma State. Um, but you played – Let's not in, go too far on that. I mean, Jim, Jimmy – you know, he started building some, some pretty good things there at Oklahoma state. And, and, you know, he, you know, him and Barry, they knew each other and, and Jimmy knew how to defend the wishbone. He just didn't have the horses uh, to defend them. Like he did all of a sudden at Miami. Now he's got probably better athletes or certainly on par with Oklahoma and our yeah. athletes were different than what Oklahoma had. Uh, but, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy knew how to beat Oklahoma he just didn't necessarily have all the pieces. So True. Know, just say that. Um, but the season after your national championship, uh, you played in one of the most hyped up and unforgettable games in college football history against Notre Dame. Uh, it was known as Catholics versus convicts. Uh, what does it mean to you have played in such a game like that? Or you know, there's a whole 30 for 30 documentary on it. They had, uh, there was a whole t-shirt slogan campaign for the game. 
it was a very exciting one. The score was 31 to 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those were one of the few things, you know, Miami was an independent. It was, this was before they even joined the big East conference. Uh, and, and obviously before the ACC, but um, you know, we would circle games on the schedule. Now that particular year was an unbelievable schedule. We played Michigan who became the big 10 champion that year. Uh, obviously played Notre Dame, who became the national champion. We played LSU, who won the Southeast. Uh, the SEC, uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't the SEC then, but uh, uh, what was it? Uh, I think it was called the Southwest Conference. Okay. Um, or actually, you know what? It was the SEC at the time. I'm sorry. Okay. And then um, uh, Arkansas, which won the Southwest Conference. Uh, then we played uh, BYU, who won the, the – so we played like six – conference champions uh and we beat them Top all ranked teams yeah yeah except except notre dame and so we knew and this was early in the year i think we were four and oh and we were ranked one uh after coming into the season uh being like maybe just outside the top 10 but we first game of the year we beat the number one team in the country uh two weeks later we go to michigan we beat them um and then we had a couple other wins in there in between. And so going against Notre Dame, we knew that they were building a good team. They had a good option quarterback and Tony Rice that, that could throw it well enough to keep you off balance. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of respect for their defense going in, but coming out we did because they, they did a great job with their pass rush. You know, they, they got pressure on me. They, they, they got the better of us uh, up front uh, and you know, they, they had the crowd behind us, the, behind them. Uh, it ultimately came down to, uh, a bad call that we felt like we, we got the, the short end of that one, uh, where they called a fumble, which would have, uh, would have tied the game. Um, and they gave Notre Dame the ball, uh, instead of giving us a touchdown, and at the time, we had the momentum because we were coming back. So, you know, a lot of things could have happened. We could have kicked off to them and they could have gone down and scored. But uh, defensively, we were playing better and we held them. We got the ball back. We went right back down and scored. And then we decided to go for two and we didn't get it. But we knew it was going to be a big ri- game. That's risky. Yeah. Well, there, you understand there was no overtimes at the time in college football if you if you tied the game Ah. you tied so there was no overtimes and you know I mean our 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 you know confidence level and our swagger and our cockiness arrogance of whatever you want to call it uh we weren't going up to South Bend to tie we went up there to win you know and uh now if we would have tied and the season would have played out as it played out we would have played them again for the national champion championship but uh you know we decided to go for the win and we didn't get it and uh but we knew it was going to be a good game it was a certainly the hype for me was exciting because being a midwest kid i'd always wanted to play there i had you know there was over 100 people coming down from st paul to to see the game and you know there was there was just a lot of excitement around the game yeah um also didn't that year you finished uh, fourth in Heisman voting and the runner-up in the Davey O'Brien tro- 
Yep. Uh, ironically enough, I was runner up to Troy Aikman. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, in the Heisman, Barry Sanders won the Heisman. Uh, uh, Troy was second, Rodney Pete was third, and I was fourth. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of interesting that. Group, group of yeah. uh, Heisman finalists there. And uh, I had a game that night, so I, I, I didn't go to New York, uh, but we just did a remote from South Florida. And, uh, you know, Barry deserved to win it, though. Barry had an unbelievable year and, you know, set touchdown records and yards, rushing records. He was just obviously proven, you know, as he as he progressed to the NFL, what a great player he was. Yeah. Um, so after your college career was over, uh, you were selected number one in the 1989 supplemental draft by the Cowboys. And even though Jimmy, who is your head coach at Miami, now now working for the Dallas Cowboys, it's just kind of interesting because you know, now in the league, you see guys or you see guys going from college to the NFL, but rarely do, it, did it happen back then. Uh, but it was considered a questionable move at the time, given that the Cowboys had drafted uh, Troy with the first overall pick in the same year. Why do you think uh, why did Jimmy exactly decide to draft two quarterbacks? Well, you know, obviously he had a, had a great experience with me. Uh, he, he knew the talent he had in Troy, but, you know, he, he felt like I gave them a chance to win, you know, that my style of play could, could uh, still give them a chance to win. But at the end of the day, he, he picked me because it expressed more value in me and he felt like he could trade me. So it was a, it was a, uh, a bluff in some ways, where, hey, listen, I'm going to pick you. Now, if you would have told Jimmy that he would be giving up the number one overall pick the next year because Dallas ended up having the worst record in, in 1989, <laughs> I'm not sure if he would have drafted me. But his strategy played out because, you know, in 1990, T, you know, the New Orleans Saints were struggling with a, with a free agent quarterback that was holding out in Bobby Hebert, and they had a, a – a, a guy that was playing for them that showed really, you know, brilliance or flashes of brilliance or greatness the previous year. And they thought he could be the starter, but he was struggling and they had a good football team around this quarterback, but they decided to make a trade. So Jimmy was able to get, you know, a first round, a second round, a third round for me. And to him that probably helped cement his Super Bowl teams you know, because he was able to get, uh, I want to say Eric Williams was somewhere in that, in that, those draft picks, you know, so they were able to get some really good players uh, for starters. Yeah. Yeah. They were able to get uh, players that they got in the next year's draft in those subsequent drafts that helped help them win a, a Super Bowl. So, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a risk by Jimmy uh, calculated, but you know, he kind of knew what he was doing and, and he, you know, my agent kind of made a comment. My agent was Marvin Demoff, who was a, uh, a very well-respected agent uh, and still practices a little bit, but uh, respected agent in the industry. And he made a comment. He said, you know, Steve, the league has no idea how smart Jimmy is, you know, and, and they, they weren't thinking, they didn't give him much credit 
to do what he did and come in and really kind of revamp, you know, the way to build a football team and draft values. And I mean, hell, there's a whole chart about, you know, trade values and, and draft picks that's attributed to Jimmy and, and what he set up in Dallas. So, you know, didn't it, he set up, didn't he set up also the Herschel Walker trade? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, that was in that uh, 89 season. So uh. yeah, that was a big one. So he was loading up on draft picks and, and uh, you know, he knew that he had a, you know, Jimmy's, Jimmy's legacy, I think is always uh, the fact that he was such an incredible evaluator of talent. And, you know, to me, Jimmy's legacy is he was such, yes, he was a very good evaluator, but he was a great motivator and uh, you know, gifted speaker and uh, but great motivator, uh, you know, the, the psychologist, the psychology background that he had from his days uh, studying in school, you know, he just, he knew how to motivate guys and what buttons to push and when to push them. When did, um, so before you even got sort of traded, uh, when did you exactly know that Troy would be like the guy? Because obviously during that 89 or during that 89 season, uh, you, uh, the Cowboys had the worst record. Troy Aikman went 0 and 11 and you were the one, uh, you gave them their only win against at the time, uh, a very good Washington Redskins team. Yeah. I mean, you pulled and, off the upset. Yeah. But and by no means was that win an offensive juggernaut. I mean, we, we won a low scoring game and I, I made good decisions. I uh, didn't put the team in a bad situation, made enough plays and we won the game, but you know, we, we were, we were not a good football team. We weren't, uh, we weren't really good in any areas. And uh, you know, we were a, a one in 15 team and we happened to, to put enough together in the one game to beat Washington. And uh, you know, we, we got over the hump, but it, you know, the, the scrutiny that Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones put up with through those first two years uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody because I mean, it'd be like, you know, March madness might be going on and then, you know, a columnist in the, in the Dallas papers might r- write a story about how Jimmy Johnson will never win in Dallas. He, you know, like they were just so yeah. wrong on him. Uh, and, and, you know, Jimmy and Jerry, uh, you know, they, they, they knew what they, what they had to do and they went out and did it. I mean, Going on that, it's sort of weird how with the columns or in today's game, even when you have a coach sort of like that or someone making decisions like that, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of what uh, the Raiders have been doing with John Gruden. They've been trading a lot of their assets and talent, such as they traded Khalil Mack a few years ago uh, for a bunch of draft picks. And people are still very uncertain or still criticizing Gruden for uh, his trade decisions and getting rid of talent and, you know, sort of rebuilding the entire roster. So I can only imagine what the scrutiny would be like in today's era if Jimmy and Jerry were doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when like in any phase of business, when a, when a new boss comes in, you know, there's going to pe- be people that are eliminated or, you know, defect because they don't like the leadership. And, uh, you know, John Gruden came in and, and his contract, uh, you know, warranted a lot of power. And if 
Khalil Mack, who's a great player, didn't want to fall in line, then all right, we're gonna get rid of you, you know, because there's a there's a, a stepping stone that you go through. You know, usually a new coach has a setback and then he builds year after year. I mean, that's how really strong programs are built, how strong teams are built is, you know, maybe it doesn't come overnight. It comes in, you know, season two, season three, and then now you're contending, you know, uh, in season four for maybe a title. But, um, you know, I, I can't fault Gruden for getting rid of talent if talent doesn't want to be there, you know, or talent doesn't want to get with the program in, in John Gruden's eyes. So, you know, we'll, we'll never know what went on behind scenes, but, you know, I guarantee you if Khalil Mack or Amari Cooper said, Hey, let's go. What do you want to do? You want to do many, you know, and, and just was on board. Then John Gruden knows talent and he would have been all, he would have been fine. They wouldn't have been traded, but you know, he, he felt like he needed to move people and, and maybe, uh, stock up on draft choices if he felt like that was the best thing to do to, to build the team. So I can't fault a coach for doing that. They're, they're hired to make decisions, tough decisions like that. And, you know, uh, as an outsider, you'll never know all the, all the things that really went on behind closed doors. Yeah, uh, very true. It's also important to sort of set the culture. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if uh, I totally understand that. Khalil Mack obviously is a top two, top three talent at his position, but if he doesn't want to play there, he should, or that's just, that's bad for team chemistry and morale. Uh, yeah. And, so, and obviously dollars play into it and how much, you know, how much do you want to pay a defensive end? How much you want to play, pay a wide receiver? All those things factor into how you're building your team. Yeah, that too. Um, so as you said, or, yeah, as you said, uh, you were traded to the Saints the next year, um, which is kind of unique because at the time, see, people know the Saints now as this highly functional organization, like one of the best teams in the league with Sean Payton, Drew Brees. They have that amazing roster. But when you went there, they were a historically dysfunctional franchise. So... (laughs) Being a Jets fan, I thought I would ask, what was your experience uh, playing for an organization that had, like, minimal success or, you know? Yeah, so Jim Mora had, had taken over that team, you know, coming out of the USFL where he had success um, and took over that, that franchise. The franchise did not have very – uh, well, I take that back. Jim Finks was the GM and Jim Finks had a very good reputation around the NFL uh, for building a solid franchise, but he was tough. He was tough on players and uh, in negotiations. And um, Jim Mora was a, was a uh, highly disciplined, uh, you know, military style background and, uh, tough-minded defensive guy and they had great linebackers they had a really good defense and they had uh, just average offense and and you know we were going to win games with having a great defense being great on special teams Morton Anderson was our kicker uh, hall of famer and you know offensively our job was don't don't lose the game for us you know and uh 
you know, there, there was moments we had where we, we, we put up some points, but you know, that, that team was built around the defense and, and we had great players on defense. So, you know, going there at the time, they had only uh, been in the playoffs one time in their entire franchise. And they were a franchise that was started, I think in, you know, probably, I think it was in that 61 expansion of the NFL is when they started their franchise. So it had been, you know, almost 25 years and they were only in the playoffs one time. So, you yeah. know, I get traded there and I start uh, two games, the, the second game I'm there, I start, you know, and then we had, a, we had an off week, so I had an extra week to study, but um, excuse me, I, I come in in the second quarter of the, of my second game. And then I start the third game and, and I start the rest of the year. So we, you know, we have ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. We finish eight and eight, but we make the playoffs. And the second, uh, to me, wasn't it the second effort? Uh, second second effort. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I said that they had only made it one other time. So we made it the second time. So I was very proud of that. We lost. And then the, my next three years there, I was not the starter. The Bobby Aber came back from contract negotiations they finally gave him some money and he, he was the starter. I played uh, a fair amount, but he was, he was really the starter and we lost, you know, two more playoff games in the first round. So we had not, you know, my time there, we, we had never won a playoff game. And uh, so we got into the playoffs that was a big accomplishment, but we didn't win. And uh, so, you know, that, that was the, they were always known for really good defense, but not a really solid, you know, dynamic offense by any means oh um yeah definitely it might, yeah uh so i wanted to ask uh you were able to play under great coaches uh like jimmy johnson as you mentioned jim mora you also had him in indy too at the end of your career and when uh, when you were on the Bucks, you had Tony Dungy, a uh, Super Bowl champion with the Colts, uh, a few years after uh, you were there. Uh, which of these guys do you believe was the best coach or the one that you had learned the most from, both from like as an NFL player or, you know, some of these play or some of these um as you described with Jimmy having the psychology background, like sort of as like growing up and being like a man in the league. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a good question because, you know, every experience you go through in life, you, you take something from, from your boss or your leader and some things that you really like and some things you don't like. And you say, oh, I'd never do that, but that's still a learning experience. And uh, so I always answer the question this way, Tony Dungy to me, uh, was was the guy that I respected the most only because he was so brutally honest and but he was so calm he didn't swear you know coaches when they get frustrated some, sometimes you know their 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 sentences are laced with uh, f bombs and everything else uh, but he was just so calm there was there was a calmness about him that that uh, kind of permeated and, and settled over the team at times and uh, you know, sometimes people thought that maybe that was a negative that, you know, Hey, he doesn't get on the referees enough, you know, and he doesn't get calls because he doesn't yell at them. Like, you know, Bill Parcells did, or, 
uh, or Jimmy Johnson did, you know, but I, I, I really respected Tony uh, for the way he treated the team. Absolutely respected Jimmy Johnson for how he built things, how he motivated, you know, how he talked to the team, how he inspired the team, you know, definitely took a lot away from Jimmy and how, you know, uh, just little things like, hey, it was before practice. He felt like if our mindset wasn't right before practice, he'd call us up and tell us why is this practice important, you know, and get get the group focused on that day right in front of them. So, you know, things that, you know, I, I'll do that as a coach. Um, you know, so I think, you know, it took a lot from Jimmy. From Jim Mora, it took a lot of the discipline. You know, we won 11 games in a row uh in 1999 Jim Mora that had only been done I think three or four other times in the NFL history but from the first win to the 11th win if we screwed up a play uh which didn't happen often with Peyton Manning but if we screwed it up it'd be like do it over you know like it didn't matter like a lot of times winning you get complacent and you you lose sight of your principles a little bit at times you say oh yeah yeah we'll get that on game day well, that didn't happen with Jim Mora. So the discipline, that consistency, I took a lot from Jim Mora, you know. And then I had other, you know, Dave Wanstead. I uh, had good experiences with Dave as he was an assistant at Miami and it was head coach at Chicago and, you know, learning how he handled the team. And, uh, you know, there, there was times where it was tough in Chicago because we'd lose games and Dave was was so entrenched in it that, you know, it was it was tough to be around Dave after a loss because he'd, he'd get – you get frustrated and uh, you know, so there, there's things, you know, that as, as you watch coaches and how they handle wins and how they handle losses and how they handle being in front of the team uh, you know, you, you learn from all those guys. So um, you know, it was, it was an interesting uh, perspective, you know, in St. Louis, I had Rich Brooks, which, you know, I, it, Rich was a great college coach, but the NFL uh, I think warm, warm down a little bit, you know, and he, he was a, he was a much better, I don't know, from afar, he never coached me in college, but, you know, I think, I think college was, was probably, you know, where Rich needed to be just because I think he had great, much more influence on, on young men. Um, it's actually funny that most of these coaches, uh, or at least with Dungy, uh, Jimmy and Dave, actually, uh, they're all on TV. Um, Jimmy works at Fox right now. Tony's at NBC. Did it really like, did it kind of like surprise you when like you knew like they would go into broadcasting uh, after their NFL career was over? Um, or Jimmy, Jimmy surprised me a little bit. You know, of course he sat out, you know, once he was done with Dallas, he went into broadcasting and, you know, Jimmy made a comment to me that, you know, stepping away and going into broadcasting really opened up his his mind a little bit about coaching. And when he went back to the Miami Dolphins, he was just so uh, honest with players. Like, hey, here's the deal. You know, I need you here in this. If you don't want to be here, then, you know, your chances of making the team are, are slim. And if you get cut by me, you're probably not going to play anymore. <laughs> like, like he, he would just tell players that, you know, and, and uh I just think that, you know, it opened his eyes up to the other side of, of the football world. And I think that helped him, you know, for his few years in Miami. Yeah. Um, 
So I wanted to ask you when you were on Indy. So towards the end of your career, you were the backup to Peyton Manning. So aside of all the hype and praise given to him before even starting an NFL game, he was a star quarterback at Tennessee. Obviously, his dad was an NFL or Archie was an NFL quarterback. Uh, How did you like when exactly did you know or how did you know that? you know, this kid or just from your own experiences with him being in the quarterback's room or being at practice with him, when do you know sort of like, oh, this guy's going to be like a special person in the league, like an all-time great or one of the best to ever play the position? So, you know, when I went to New Orleans, I got to know Archie Manning. And so consequently, I got to know Peyton a little bit, you know, so I, I, I probably met Peyton when he was 16 years old. And um, so I'm playing for the Saints and, and in our uh, off-season workouts or, or what they called, uh, I don't know, QB practices or OTAs is what they'd call them now. Uh, we would literally, at the end of practice, put Peyton in the huddle, tell him what the play was, and he would run a play. And he's like 16 or 17 years old. <laughs> and that didn't happen every day. What? But we would actually let him go in there in the huddle during OTAs and, and like have a couple reps of team drill or, or seven on seven or something. And, and uh, you know, so what I saw was obviously a great deal of composure, you know, that he, he was able to step into NFL huddle as a, as a 16 year old and really not blink an eye. And so, you know, obviously, you know, I, I followed his career at Tennessee stayed in touch with his dad a little bit. And, uh, you know, then we, we become teammates. And part of the reason I think our relationship was so good in Indy was because of, of Archie, you know, and, and he told Peyton, Hey, you can trust this guy. He's going to, he's going to give you good sound advice. He's a smart, you know, player. And so we had a good working relationship, uh, Peyton and I, and, you know, the thing that I noticed about him, it was his vision because there was a lot of things where we would do a play action pass where you would turn your back to the defense and fake a handoff to a running back and then turn and try to find where the safeties were. And it told you where to throw the football and he could see that. And in my 11th year, I could barely see it, but he knew immediately how deep a guy was and knew when to throw it over the top for the touchdown or throw it to a deep crossing route to Marvin Harrison <laughs> for a 20 yard gain. And I mean, and then obviously accuracy, putting the ball in the right location with the right velocity and then knowing where to go with that ball, you know, because those are all the factors that make a, a quarterback special as opposed to another guy with a middle of the road QB rating that <laughs> is on a seven and nine football team or worse. Uh, did having Jim there too also sort of help your relationship, even though he was more of like a defensive coach. So he wasn't as involved. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the big guys there offensively were Tom Moore, who at age 70 something is still coaching. I think with Tampa, Bruce Arians was our quarterback's coach. Wow. That's uh, actually. You know, yeah. Um, God, I'm trying to think uh, Howard Mudd, who recently passed away, legendary offensive line coach was, was the O-line coach. Um, you know, it, it was, it was an amazing spat, you know, the 
our receivers coach is now the head coach at the University of Nevada. Uh, our tight ends coach is the quarterback coach at Tampa. Clyde, Chris, you know, so it's, we just had a really great group of guys and good, good coaches. And uh, but you know, again, my relationship with Peyton was because of my previous relationship with his dad. You know, and that's that's why we're here. And then it's just natural, obviously. You know, I, I was not going to as the number two quarterback. I was not threatening his position by any means. You know, he yeah. he was definitely the guy. So he he didn't feel any of that pressure. So. Um. So you also played with other Hall of Famers, as I mentioned, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, and Isaac Bruce. Was there also sort of that common quality among all of them to explain their success? Well, I would never use the word calming in trying to describe Warren Sapp. You know, Warren, Warren's nuts, but that's why he's probably great because <laughs> he's a defensive tackle. You got to be a little nuts or wacko and stuff like that. So Warren, you know, Warren has that type of energy when you, when he walks in, you're going to know he's there. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I didn't play long enough with Warren, uh, through, uh, those Super Bowl years to really get a good read on him, but obviously he was a tremendous player at Miami and then obviously in his NFL career, um, Isaac Bruce was, you know, special, you know, he was a teammate just for that one year, but he had special talent and he had a, a desire like a lot of top receivers like Michael Irvin, they want the ball. They want the ball in the critical situations. They want to be the one that makes the play for the team. And, you know, when you have guys like that, that's, that instills a lot of confidence in the quarterback to say, Hey, I know if, if things get tight, I'm going to go to this guy because he's going to win, you know? And, and so that, that helps, but, you know, I mean, so much of a, of a career is dependent on having coaches around that believe in you, that uh, are not, uh, that, you know, a lot, a lot of coaches have egos. Hell, every, every individual has an ego. But, you know, NFL coaches, sometimes they don't want to change. They have a system and they have a way they want it to look. And if they don't have a guy that fits into that, that system – they'll eventually get rid of them or they'll have to change or they're going to get fired. And I think the best coaches still can adapt and do things that that player does well to help them win football games. And I've had coaches do that with me and I've had coaches that didn't do it with me and they end up, you know, I probably get fired and they get fired at some point. So, uh, you know, so I think that's, that's the thing is you got to be able to adapt, you know, yes, you can go out and select the type of guy you that you want, that you think fits, but if he doesn't fit, you got to try to make it work. True. Um, there's definitely sort of limited situations for every coach. Like not everyone gets uh, the same card, sort of. Everyone gets dealt a different hand. Uh, you know, there obviously some teams will have like a hall of famer and then some teams are going to have a guy like Mitchell Trubisky. They sort of have to, and depending on what they make of the situation. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Is there a question there? Uh, no. Is that uh, just a statement by Reed? Yeah. Just sort of yeah. a statement. Um, but so I wanted to ask sort of like, since you retired from the NFL, the way the game is played now has changed drastically. 
there's more college related concepts in the game and in offensive game plans uh, with uh, the RPO run pass options and um, more of like a running style and starting quarterbacks are like starting quarterbacks are now required to be more mobile in the pocket or have just some level of running ability. You know, you're seeing less Tom Brady's and Drew Brees of the world and more guys sort of that play similarly to Russell Wilson and Kyler. Um, who do you really enjoy watching in today's game? Well, you know, the athletic quarterback has been around forever. Um, you know, there, there's guys, I mean, you go back to Fran Tarkington, who was a great drop back passer, but his, one of his greatest attributes early on was his mobility and he scrambled and, and made plays downfield and things like that. So, so there's always been guys that can make plays with their legs and they're just inherent a lot of times, you know, that's, that's how guys progress. You know, the, the, the quarterback, if you go to evolution of the, of the positions, usually at an early age, your best athlete is either your quarterback or your running back. And some guys continue on to that position and they, they still become the best, you know, athlete on the team, maybe in college. Uh, when you get to the NFL, though, you're probably not the best athlete, you know, because there's some amazing athletes that are linebackers and running backs and wide receivers and DBs, all that, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But um, the, the guys that I like to watch, uh, you know, would be Mahomes because he's so creative and, and Andy Reid is not afraid. Andy Reid's comfortable enough in his skin to be, to try, you know, that wacko play they ran on the, on the goal line that USC ran in the Rose Bowl or somebody ran, you know, in the Rose Bowl, <laughs> you know. So I think there's, there's enough creativity there. Uh, and and if, it, if it fails, Andy Reid isn't going to, worry about it because he's got a, a resume of, of, of being a, a great play caller and an offensive mind. Um, you know, I still like, you know, you know, although uh, Brady has been productive, uh, they've been so inconsistent offensively. I don't love watching them as much as I do like watching Drew Brees, you know, because Drew's been able to dissect you in the pocket, uh, you know, Drew's, Drew's got enough mobility, but he's able to dissect people in the pocket. And him and Sean Payton have, have been such a good team. And they got offensive weapons with Kamara. Um, but, you know, Breeze is somebody uh, that I like to watch. Um, you, you, watch know, last night, you watch last night's game with Josh Allen. Yeah, yeah. And Josh is, is coming into Josh his own. Josh is, you know? yeah, I think he's a very special talent. Or, yeah, I mean, there, there was the play that he rolled to his left and made that throw. That's a very difficult throw. There's only only some guys, and Mahomes is one of them, that can make that where they can change their arm angle and still get enough velocity in the ball to throw it 25, 30 yards in the end zone for a touchdown. And those are the guys that, you know, uh, you know they, they may not always look pretty, but, uh, you know, they, they're, they're highly productive. And, and Josh has really developed – into a, a good young talent, uh, you know, for, for the Bills and Buffalo's having a special year. Um, but, you know, the, the, the game, the biggest change is that more coaches are comfortable with their quarterback being in the shotgun. You know, you still have uh, 
a tendency for to want to put the guy under center because that's kind of the staple of the NFL. But more teams are comfortable putting him in a shotgun, which then opens up uh, the league for for shorter quarterbacks because they their vision's better than being under center. Um, and yes, the the you know college and NFL concepts go up and down as guys get fired and they go to college and they they learn some things that they can do there and they bring them to the NFL and NFL guys go down to college and, and there's just a, a free information flows in between uh, those two levels of play. And uh, they, they know that uh, what gives defensive problems and, you know, they, they, they want to instill that in their system. So yeah, the RPO game that, you know, and, and there's been aspects of that in the NFL for many years but uh, you know what what's been done at the college level with tempo and then RPOs have has drifted up to the NFL a little bit more over the last three years. Yeah. Um, so with that sort of, uh, I thought I'd also ask like, who's like your sort of favorite watch in the league or like the best team in the league right now, sort of. Or who do you think is going to be in Tampa in February? You know, I think, uh, you know, it's funny that the whole home field advantage obviously is kind of a, a mute point at this point in more ways than yeah. one because of the, the, the lack of fans. But, um, you know, I think that uh, in the AFC, I think Pittsburgh has a chance to um, – to keep it close, you know, they, they're going to be a team that has been there and has, has been in the, in the, uh, in the big games with Roethlisberger, uh, you know, obviously defense has always been a staple of the Steelers. So, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people are just saying, Oh, it's going to be Kansas city and the bills. I would not count the Steelers out. Uh, I think they have a chance to really make some noise in the playoffs. Um, I don't honestly know if anybody is, is good to, to keep up with the Chiefs, uh, you know, scoring because they can score in so many ways. Um, but I think the AFC uh, will be more interesting than people think. Uh, in the NFC, I think it's wide open. I, I don't see a team, uh, you know, New Orleans has, has had its issues. Uh, Green Bay... Mm -hmm. You know, Groove has been getting really hot as a played. Yeah, you know, and, and then Seattle is, is kind of one of those teams that, you know, because of their past success and Russell Wilson and, and things like that. I mean, it's – I think there's – because of the lack of fans, I think anybody can, can beat any, anyone anywhere, you know. Now, if you had to go into New Orleans, play in front of, you know, 80,000 fans, that becomes a lot more difficult. If you got to go to Green Bay, the elements play into it, but then you add the fans on top of that, that becomes difficult. And then obviously playing in Seattle has always been a challenge for teams. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's why I think the uh, NFC is wide open with the exception of, of the, uh, the NFC East winner. I think uh, anybody can win it. <laughs> I'm sort of, it's actually interesting you bring up the Steelers. A lot of people wouldn't really mention them now because they've been sort of on a losing skid or has, they haven't mm -hmm. been as good as they were a month or two ago. 
uh, I've sort of been hopping. I wouldn't say I've hopped on, but I really, I really like the Ravens um, to possibly pull off a few upsets. I mean, as the playoff bracket is right now, Baltimore would go into Pittsburgh for the wild card game. And I think uh, just based on, like, they obviously have the Super Bowl winning coach, and I think Lamar's playing the best football since uh, last year, since that MVP year. So I wouldn't be surprised if they made, like, some noise in the uh, – if they made some noise in the playoffs. I also just yeah. don't think – Kansas City hasn't been as productive necessarily as of late. They're really – they're winning games by one possession or a little less against teams. They, I think they should be blowing out. I mean, a win's a win, but uh, they're, they haven't been as like thoroughly dominant as they have been the past two years. Yeah. I mean, I think every season, you know, as we wrap this up here, you know, every season you go through adversity and some, some of that comes early in the year. Some of it comes in the middle and some comes near the end. And then you hope that you can recover. So I think Steelers, you know, they've, they've faced some adversity where they haven't played as well offensively over these last four weeks. You know, maybe this past win against Indianapolis was a breakthrough moment for them. And now maybe that arrow's pointing back up again. The Ravens, yeah, you're, you, you hit it right. I mean, they've been playing really well, you know, because they've had some pressure games. It's win or go home type of moments for them. And they've been able to get on a, a hot streak. Um, you know, obviously going into the last week, there's, there's a lot of scenarios that can play out. Um, you know, Cleveland's just kind of hanging on, you know, obviously it's tough, um, you know, when they, when they lose and they don't have their full, full roster and and things like that. But, uh, you know, every team faces adversity. Yeah. Everybody faces it, especially in this year. And, And it's just been a unique year for coaches and players and, uh, you know, it's been amazing, amazing that they've been able to pull it off. I didn't think college had a chance uh, and really, you know, with the number of postponements and things like that and, and canceled games, it hasn't been perfect by any means. The NFL has been unbelievable that they've been able to get every game in. Uh, that, that's, that's been, you know, yeah. un- unbelievable. So, so um, I thought I, um, one last question or about sort of your career. What was the most or one of the most uh, memorable moments of your football career, whether it was in high school or at Miami or any sort of experience in the NFL? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, professionally, you know, going up to Minnesota uh, for a first round playoff game and going into the old Metrodome and in front of a a lot of family and friends and, and beating the Vikings pretty soundly in that, in that first round, that wild card round, that was a, that was a big moment for me. Uh, we had lost to them up there just a month earlier. And, uh, and so it was, it was good redemption for us. And, and, you know, I played well and, you know, we, we were uh, given then the, the honor of going to San Francisco and getting our ass whooped by the uh, eventual Super Bowl winners uh, back in 1994, I think it was. So uh but that, that was a big moment, you know, and obviously in college winning the national championship and getting through that season undefeated, <clears throat> beating Oklahoma in the orange bowl. And, you know, as Jimmy Johnson always said, you know, there's nothing like being the best 
to walk <laughs> off a field knowing that you're the best, you're undefeated, and uh, you'll be getting a ring to uh, commemorate that victory for the rest of your life. Uh, so last question, what? You um, said last question was the last question. You don't get another one. <laughs> no, I I'm just sort of. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, uh, quickly. But um, yeah, it, it was just sort of asking, what are you doing currently uh, with the CFL? So I, I coach quarterbacks in the CFL. So I started with Toronto uh, in 2017. We won the Great Cup. I went to Saskatchewan. Uh, the last two years, and now I'm with the Ottawa Red Blacks. That's what that that R is for, the Red Blacks in Ottawa. So, so uh, going into my fifth year in the CFL. Um. Yeah. Do you is it different from? Do you enjoy how it's sort of different from the NFL, or are there a lot of different yeah, similarities? I mean, there it's still football. It's tackling, blocking, throwing, and catching, and things like that. But they play with twelve men. They play in a bigger field and. Uh, they, they, you only get three downs, not four downs. So that may, that puts more pressure on the play calling. And it's just, you know, as, as my brothers uh, and family watch it, they say, man, it's just so, so much quicker than the NFL, not the speed of the players, because the best athletes are playing in the NFL. You know, we, we get guys that maybe have played in the NFL or they've been to camp and got cut. And then half your team is Canadian. And, you know, a, a lot of those guys did not get to the NFL. Although there's some, obviously, Claypool, the receiver from Pittsburgh, is Canadian. But, um, you know, the, the majority of those guys, you know, played, you know, college up there. Maybe they played college in the States and then they went back and they're playing professional football in Canada in the CFL. But it's, it's uh, definitely the nuances of the game uh, are different. There's different strategy. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's football. So. Yeah. Um, well... Uh, I guess that's it. Th Steve, once again, I'm very, I appreciate it very much having you on. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, really um, do you do. have my address to, to mail me the check then? <laughs> um, you might have to send that. All right. I'll just hit up Uncle Adam, you know. So <laughs> yeah. Still, uh, but you know. Uh, I thought he was me. underwriting this today anyways. <laughs> um. Once again, Steve, thank you so much for being on here. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I value your insight. You bring a different perspective than from uh, the fans or just the average watcher. So thank you. All right, buddy. appreciate it. Good luck with the show going forward. And, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll say hi to your uncle when I see him next <laughs> All right. Thank you so right. much. Thanks, Reed. See you, buddy. See ya.